Art and Bullshit Podcast. Art and Bullshit Podcast. Art, 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 art and Bullshit Podcast. You, and we're back. Episode 55 of the Art and Bullshit Podcast. The podcast by artists, for artists, and art lovers. I am your host from the West Coast, James Drills. We out here pre-recorded getting this audio for you guys. Man, I'm out here doing what I gotta do. It's real in the field without a sword and shield. I'm just out here. Bellingham, Washington, the circuit came out here. Yeah, we we recording. Uh, yeah, and this will be the last. We, we went old school on you guys. I know you expected the new technology by to go old school and bring out the cell phone due to mad technical difficulties and me forgetting um, my power cords. Shout out to me forgetting my power cords. And shout outs to Best Buy for supplying the wrong power adapter for uh, my headphone amplifier, which led to a snowball effect. But anyway. That was real. That was real, man. We in here. So, I would like to introduce. You guys read the description, so you know who's in the building. We got the Abbott of Apple Pies. We got Gandalf with the glass work. We got a traveling man with a plan that we will go into. Longtime friend, longtime Homie Eli Hansen. What's going down, Eli? Hey, man. How's it going, Jimmy? Man, we're chilling. We're chilling. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. I'm really glad to be here. It's nice to see you. Nice to be present in this space right now. Um, yeah. Um, Th- thank you for having us out on the farm. Yeah, dude. I'm glad you made the it. Compound. We're, we're here in Bellingham at our glass shop that my wife and I own. Um, we're making glasses today we've been in this space about i've been in bellingham for this round about three years and then okay i met you in Be- did i meet you in tacoma or meet you in bellingham in tacoma in tacoma when i moved down there. i moved down to tacoma in 2006 early 2006 before that i lived in bellingham 2002 to 2006 and that's where i met reader and herman beans and Bort Jimson and Big Beans and all the shout out to the buzzards. All the, all the buzzards. That was a, that was a, that was some real prime time dirty dirty buzzard. And we all we uh, we all volunteered at a bike shop together. I met those guys because they all came in and were stealing bike parts. And so so I took them home and fed them. And then we became good friends. And then in 2006, I moved to Tacoma. And I was working in glass shops down there, and Reed was hanging out with me. I feel like we might have met in Bellingham before that. Cause I think no, I, because I've never been to Bellingham. Oh, okay. Well, then we didn't. I feel like I somehow met you before I moved down to Tacoma. But then I remember one time you were at my house. Mm-hmm. 2006 there was it was like a long weekend of you and Joe Meter Joe and the reader and there were some other people and like I would I would be going to bed at like 8:30 or 9 when y'all were just getting started I'd like get I would like get home from work feed you guys breakfast and then I'd be like I'm going to bed and y'all are like we're going to the underworld we'll see you and then like I would be up at five and I would see one of you guys like coming in or like leaving, like somebody looking suspicious and I'd be like, it's all good, man. Let's fish this here, dude. You know, I've always loved to be kind of like a support system for 
things, you know, because I've just been I've been hustling on glass for a long time. Mm-hmm. I make have uh, worked as a production glass blower, making vases and cups and bowls, art, whatever, you know. Fancy, fancy art stuff, fancy cups, you know, not really much bongs and pipe stuff, uh, mostly just fancy glass. Uh, but man, I'm not, I ain't afraid to make a bong. I just, uh, I'll make, a, I make bongs and dildos definitely, but I just don't make money. Uh, the fancy stuff makes money, so that's what I do. And yeah, I was in that, that was, I was hanging out with Herman at that point. He got his house. 2004 or something so we were partying over there and then um, him too and caveman and I'm trying to remember him too's friend though he's dropping all the names bingo bingo yeah bingo when I met those dudes him too I was like where the fuck did these motherfuckers come from they were so on one the West it was like straight out of central casting it was just like you know, like, goon fucking graffiti, but, like, fast mouth, like, maniac, really smart and, like, so fun and, like, so scary. And so I was like, I'm on board, man. Let's fuck with this. And so, I, you know, because that was, like, how I met Herman Reed was yeah. I was always making food. And I was like, why don't you come over to my house and we'll eat. And so the people always would go to my house and eating, and then mm. I like to party, so we always be partying. Yeah. So, Eli, I have to hit you with the question of questions. What was your first memory seeing art? Well, my parents were artists. They were bookbinders. They made blank books, journals and photo albums, sketchbooks for people. Um, Man, so like a first art, I feel like art was just there, was like present, was part of it. I mean, weirdly, probably some of my first art is my own art, you know, because that would have been more of a recollection, like making art, Mm. you know, that's probably a more earlier memory than really going to see art. So we're always going to art museums. And so we would, would, my parents would sell the books in bookstores back when there was like independent bookstores, not the big chains, but just like the little, back when cities had their own bookstores. Uh, they'd sell to those like in Seattle Elliott Bay Book Company and then there's Powell's Books in Portland and there's a bunch of those all over the west coast or there were they're not anymore Um, and so and then also they would sell to like small craft shops art kind of sometimes it was like imported craft things it was locally made craft stuff Um, they were really deep in the arts and crafts scene of the northwest so I kind of grew up very much like in that world, um, going to studios, making things. Uh, hold up, my kids. Be- yeah, for sure. Art and And we're back, episode fifty-five of the Art and BS podcast, the podcast by artists for artists and art lovers. You know what, guys? We got so into the interview. We were ready to get to it, and we didn't even get the housekeeping out the way. So let's get some housekeeping out the way, and then we're going to return back to the uh, episode. Shout out to the listeners on Apple holding us down. Uh, Cats over on Spotify. We see you. The three niggas on Google. Stay six feet apart. Cover your mouth when you cough. 
Keep that hand sanitizer on deck. Listeners on the web, we appreciate you. Announcements still going down. We, we got books for sale. You know, we dropped the prices to keep it more economical, but still just as phenomenal. Paintings are still on deck if you want those. And you guys know that we still have bum, 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 the t-shirts on the teespring if you fill with it. So, also, shout outs to the Batman. Get a t-shirt and get some underwear. Buy you some. For real. Shout outs to the back and Custom Framery. If you're looking for some tabernacles, some cassettas, some casings, you know they're flipping those tondos, the Flemish corners over there. Hit up Nigel at thebatican.com. All right, and we back to the interview. So, Eli, you were saying that your parents were bookbinders, and I'm curious as to, like, what type of books they were binding. They made um, photo albums and journals, sketchbooks, handmade hand-sewn with marble paper uh, on the surface and then cloth bound. And then we'd also make some leather bound. So I learned a lot. That was what I did all through high school was working in the book bindery, um, learning about paper craft, the old Italian paper craft. Okay. And then in college, I went to Whitman College and I studied um, printmaking, which is kind of a natural progression from um, book binding because it's kind of, you know, it's all related. Um, so it's paper, paper stuff. So that was, that was like straightforward and that was good. I did, I went to Whitman College for three years and I kind you know, I got to the end of three years and I kind of had a moment I had a good GPA, like 3.9 GPA. Everything was going good. But I was looking at like probably with like the scholarship that I had, I was still going to have probably twenty to $25,000 worth of debt. Mm. And I was already about 25 in. And it was going to be... It, you know, it just seemed... I made this decision of to drop out that I didn't want to have to take on that cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought my feeling at the time was that I didn't want, I wanted to learn in studio rather than paying to learn at an art school. I wanted to learn in studio mm -hmm. through a more traditional apprenticeship. I mean, I think knowing what I know now, like it's stupid to not have finished and like get that degree, you know, because that definitely would have been the smart choice. But also, it did really put me on that path. Like, that's what I did. I moved to New Orleans. I moved to Montana to kind of take a break, got a job on a ranch, and was chasing cows around on a four-wheeler with a dog and a 22. Uh, did that for six months. Left Montana in the middle of winter on a motorcycle. Drove down through Utah, like, in the fucking two lanes, like... The two, tr the tire tracks of a car is what you gotta drive it when you're driving the snow in a motorcycle. Uh -huh. It is so fucking scary. I was on one. Um, <laughs> but I drove that motorcycle to New Orleans and I got to New Orleans and I only crashed a couple times on the way there. And we was good, we was good. Like, I ended up in some real situations in Utah. So I was always trying to, like, get to a warm spot. So you'd always end up with somebody weird. I like, took some bum on my motorcycle, this huge ass motorcycle, packed with stuff, get this bum on my bike. Because he was cold too, he wanted to go somewhere. And we ended up going back to this house, and I was like, y'all, and, like, I think, basically, they all thought, this dude was, like, bringing me back to smoke some crack. 
<laughs> but I think they, everyone got their signals mixed. I just wanted to smoke some weed, dude. I wasn't trying to smoke no damn crack in fucking Utah in a crack house. I was like, this is not how this is going to go down. I'm about to smoke this weed. I'm about to get out of here and get back on my bike. Um, so that trip to New Orleans is what – I had done some glass work um, when I was younger, but not super seriously. And New Orleans is where I started at this – New Orleans School of Glass and Print and they had printing presses and glass blowing and so I ended up fixing up some of their printing presses they had Vandercook letter presses and I fixed up some of their printing presses became friends with the glass people and then they gave me like a glass blowing class like in exchange for some work I did and so I did a little bit of glass blowing got my hands in it and was and you know it's just it's so it's so hard to do mm. and it's so fascinating and if you learn from people that know how to do it mm. you immediately see that it's possible mm. and you you know you just think you can and you think and you try and it's impo- impossible and it's like there's just a desire to get back and try it again it's yeah. like watching somebody play an instrument in a really visceral way you know just with their whole body and you want to just like you know try it and it's really hard and challenging you just can't believe how Somebody gets so good at it. So it just fascinating quickly, really easily. And I came back up to the Northwest and worked in... Um, I did some construction for a little bit, took some more glass classes, and then moved to Bellingham in 2002, early 2002. And got a job at a glass shop here in town in Bellingham as and trying in that kind of informal apprenticeship situation i was like i'll just start sweeping floors i'll do whatever it takes to just be here yeah and then started going around other shops to watch that's a big that's kind of the learning technique for glass artists in the northwest is to just make pilgrimages to different shops different people doing different techniques different people doing different things Mm -hmm. um you know so you or if there's different teams, you want to go watch a team, you know, you just kind of um, go watch all the different techniques and practice and practice and practice and get whatever you, jobs you can working in um, all the different shops, different production shops, making Christmas ornaments, making little cups, making float balls, making big twisty, squiggly garden art stuff. You know, there's just all these things where you just get a job doing one little part of like you know a hundred times in a day you do one little thing do that a bunch of times um and so I spent a bunch of years doing that and then I moved to Tacoma in 2006 Mm -hmm. I had done my almost four years here in Bellingham and so it seemed like time to move to Tacoma or Seattle. So I looked at Seattle Tacoma and checked them out and Tacoma, I, I don't know. Tacoma seemed better because it had a, um, has a museum of glass. So it's a nonprofit glass institution. It has two hot shops in the schools, one at Wilson in high school and Jason Lee in the middle school. And then within that has the Hilltop Artists and Residence Program which is a program for at-risk youth to learn how to blow glass. And so I was volunteering a lot at the bike shop up here at Bellingham, and I wanted to keep volunteering at nonprofits. So it seemed like a good choice to go towards Tacoma. And I don't know, I like the idea of staying out of the city and staying out of the 
the kind of hubbub of the glass scene. Mm-hmm. It's a very much a scene, and it's a lot of people that are all hanging out with each other. So I wanted to get Tacoma. Wanted to do my dirt. I'm a lonely man. I didn't want to like <laughs> get that. You know, you know, shit where you eat. You know, I didn't want yeah. to get caught up in the workplace. So yeah, I was like, well, and you feel I want like Tacoma to get us some dirt, dog. It's the nighttime. We can do some nighttime activities. Right, right. Well, and also, but being away from the Seattle scene in Tacoma, do you think that that gave you an edge in? Your your work was like they had to go out of their way to see what you're doing, but then you can go into Seattle and still check all the stuff. Yeah, I, and I would go visit up there, and I worked there a lot. I was just working a lot too, and I was just hustling, hustling, hustling. And by 2007, I had a show in Vancouver, Canada, and then met the curator of Seattle Art Museum, who invited me and my brother to do a show um, at the Seattle Art Museum in 2008, April 2008. And mm. they bought a piece of ours. That was a piece that Herman almost broke one time. He tried. To, he borrowed my car in the middle of the night. He came up. I was shit hammering on the couch. He's like, "Hey, I need to borrow your car." And I was like, "Or no, no." He said, "I need to move your car. It's in, my, it's in the way of my car." I was like, "Oh yeah, here's my keys, man. I'm, I'm shit hammered." And he's like, oh, "I'll be right back." And so he hopped in my car and took off. And I had had this piece that the Seattle Art Museum had bought from me sitting in the front seat of my car. And he hopped in the car and just like threw it in the back. Didn't even look at it. It was just like wrapped, loosely wrapped in bubble wrap. And he checked it in the back. And it somehow did not break. It was so crazy. Uh, so that was kind of like, that was a moment that year, 2008. It was when things kind of as an artist started to pop off for me. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, it didn't, it wasn't anything huge, but it was like real institutional interest. And I had real shows and galleries. Mm-hmm. You know, real budgets all of a sudden. You know, I've been blowing glass for six years. And in some ways, I hadn't been blowing glass. I wasn't, like, a great glass blower. I mean, still, it's really hard to learn how to do. It takes a long time. Six years, not that much in the glass world. Um, and then I was also not – I hadn't been showing in Seattle. So I kind of jumped ahead. There was, like, a whole scene that I was kind of not really involved in in Seattle that mm. I, all of a sudden I was kind of, like, part of somehow, but I wasn't really connected. I don't know. I'm just like from out in the woods. I'm not like from Seattle. I don't really know those people. <laughs> so, you know, things, things kind of started to work there. And then in 2010, I had had a few shows. I had a show in New York City and a show in London, I believe. Okay. So, so now. And L- LA. I had a couple shows in LA. Okay. And that. Herman was down there for that. We had some real, like, crazy graffiti dudes showing up for those. So, now, is this... I did a show with Reed. Because I I want you to talk about the whole, like, you know, the when we were talking about the the paint earlier on and things like that, how you were asking me what type of oil paint I use. Yeah. Right? I want you to talk about, like, that particular chapter, you know. About the old old Holland paint? Yeah, and, like, yeah, you being over there. So, yeah, in, in 2010 is when... I mean, it was kind of in like, it was weird. It was like a, it was a good time for me, but it was also, it was a good time in the art world. Mm-hmm. 2005 was a real peak. 2008, like hit this like kind of slow spot, but really, I don't know. I feel like it didn't really bind up until 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. 2010. There was still lots of money going around. Like it felt like me and the other artists I knew in my caliber were like, the galleries are willing to pay for production. They were willing to pay for shipping and they're willing to pay for travel. And those three, three things are generally like in the big time galleries. Those are generally like across the board. That's what the gallery covered. You know, they take care of like 
photographing the work, like they, the artist makes the work in their studio and they're done with it on the wall. And the gallery comes, gets it off the wall, gets it to the gallery, pays for that, pays for the artist to come, pays for the cost and the materials. With painting, there's like this weird kind of thing where like they'll pay for paint, but they won't pay for the canvas or some shit. It's like that. But I was generally getting production costs covered. And then I had this show, I had a couple good shows in LA and I had this show in LA that I met my wife, my current wife, Blair, or my only wife. Um, but we met, she wasn't my wife then we met. And, um, she actually, she put me in this show in LA and this guy called the Perez projects. Mm. And that, that was kind of at the center of like the hot boys of the art world right then. It was like these like, you know, white kids from New York, these like 23 year old bad boys who really were just like rich kids who did cocaine. Um, and they didn't, they didn't know shit about being bad boys, yo, dog. Like, I was, I was a real bad boy. Bad boy town. And, like, that shit, they don't want your, their picture taken. They go to no damn magazine. They don't put no fashion clothes. <laughs> right. So, um, so I was kind of, like, aware of this world. And I was starting to kind of get pulled into it or, you know, orbit around it in some ways. I wasn't really getting... I was, like, it's still too weird to make the money. Um, but uh, Blair put me... Blair... Taylor at the time, Blair Hansen, put me in this art show. And her and this woman, Ellen Langan, Ellen Dugan now, um, she worked at the Macaron Gallery. And so the Macaron Gallery and the Perez Project Gallery were kind of at the center of that, like, of the 2005 peak scene of New York, like real money. And they were the really cool ones. And so then I became friends with Blair and Ellen and then started showing at the Macaron and started just became friends with Blair and then in 2010 in January 2010 wait no in in January 2009 uh, no it was fucking 2010 all that shit went down so fast dude that shit's crazy Mm -hmm. Um, January 2010 Blair and I were back in LA she was working for a different guy called Hauser and Worth Hauser and Worth and Gagosian and David's were like the three main galleries. 85% of sales from art fairs go through those three galleries. Those mm-hmm. are the three galleries that make it all happen. Mm-hmm. Any art fair, anything that's happening, they're just trying to be next to those people. Mm-hmm. And so those guys, they're the big, you know, and in some ways they're kind of the Walmart of it, you know? I mean, they try to, they're fancy and shit, but like it's, it's everything is there. Um, and so Blair was working at one of these galleries. How's her worth? And she was in town. I was in town doing a show at a not Ebke's gallery, another a woman I showed with in LA. Um, and so then Blair and I, within that weekend, decided that we should get married. Pretty much. Um, we had, you know, not dated, got together that weekend, we're like, let's do this. And so it, you know, it, was, it took a couple weeks to kind of cement that deal. But then I was moving out to New York. It was on, got to New York by April, mm. April 1st, and by April 16th, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage four cancer. Mm. And so it was like, put on the brakes, like, put it in reverse, beep, 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 beep. And so, got the sound effects, man. Um, so, we, <laughs> so we moved back to the Northwest. We came back here. I was in New York already. I was like, all right, let's do this. Mm. And then we moved back to the Northwest. And um, 
because my healthcare was here. Okay. And got, did that, and then, um, you know, moved back here, got, like, set on that, and then went through six months of chemo and treatment, and then when we got done with that, there was this painter um, that hired us to work for him upstate New York, one of these bad boys. Um, and so he hired Blair and I to move out there and help him start a sculpture studio. And he had bought a farm with a rundown barn and a funky old barn house. And so I was there on site just kind of overseeing, like, the studio construction. Like, I wasn't even doing the construction. I wasn't even, like, a manager. I was just, like, checking in with, like, the architects and, like, planning the studio, planning where, like, electricity and airlines and shit go for the studio and, like, essentially to set this dude up with, like, a wood shop and a metal shop and, like, kind of to make things, but at that scale, when you're that kind of artist showing, he showed with Gagosian and to show at that scale like, really what we were setting the studio up was to do R&D about surface treatment and mock-ups and not actually make sculpture that we would job out the sculpture making, but we would, like, figure out what we need to do. Mm. Which was kind of crazy and a little backwards, and it ended up, like, turning back into kind of more of a sculpture studio because that's incredibly expensive to do that. But if you sell pieces for millions of dollars, it works. Right. But also, if you're selling pieces for millions of dollars, it's easy to, like, get on one. You're like, I just sold one for, you know, a million bucks, and then you spend two million, you're like, we can make five million, and then, boom, you end up two million in debt. You know, like the yeah. numbers there, it's the same as the yeah. same as we deal with hundreds of dollars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but we, it was on, when I got there, it was like the money was just flowing. It was really crazy. Um, and so that's where I learned about, that's where I studied painting with his painters, mm. not with him, but with his painters. Cause so, he's, he's a studied painter, went to RISD, was a good painter, used to be able to paint good. Still can paint pretty good. Doesn't paint all the time. Mm-hmm. But is is a, a incredibly accomplished painter and a very technical painter. Mm-hmm. It's grid style, traditional okay, Italian, okay. oil painting, perfect blending, color matching everything. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like he got super into Coke and it's like it really lines up well with being a really good oil painter. Like you've got something, you got a photograph that's like a three three inch by five inch photograph. You need to turn it into a three foot by five foot painting. And you basically need to color match every single pixel in that painting. Mm-hmm. And you need to grid it out and lay it out. And so you color match, you like get a tiny little section. You take your, you know, half inch square uh-huh. and you color match that whole square. Mm-hmm. And you can do it in any which way you want. Because if you're good at color matching, then you can you can start on the left side of the painting and then you can move to the right side. You can like move all around. And if you're true to your color matching, it'll all blend good at the end. It won't look like a bunch of different squares. It'll look like a fucking painting. It'll look fucking good. And so that's some, like, geek out. That's the tech level that I got the info on. Like, the mm-hmm. intel on was, like, <laughs> here's how we use all these brushes. And it was, like, it's also, like, it's about money. Because it's about buying every single old Holland tube. Not You're not blending from different colors. You blend every single fucking tube, and you get the big tube, and then you get the perfect fucking oil stuff, and I could I get write this all this stuff down that you get, but all the like oil blend stuff, and like you use you don't use much of it, and you don't use the shitty stuff, and you don't thin stuff out, and you don't, and when it ain't right, you throw it away, and you know, 
and you mix it just so, and then you use your brushes for a couple weeks. You know, you don't, like, when a brush ain't right, you toss it. You know, a big-ass brush. Like, you spend $500 on a brush, and you use it until it doesn't work. And it might be a day, and then you throw it away. And it's on that. You know, it's that. And that's the level of New York art scene. Like, that's how they make shit in those studios. Mm. That's how Coons makes it, how, like, all those dudes, it's like you have 10, 20 people on a project, you know? You know, maybe you got... Three, three to five on like some special teams shit. Mm-hmm. Got a big couple, couple crews working on things, different paintings, and you bounce them around, and you spend all oh, a bunch of money on materials and studio space, light, and like make it cushy for your people, and then just like give them like have them work for long ass hours, have them make Damn. hella paintings, you know, and th- and it's like it's it's a similar thing that I do in the glass world. So is it's, it? Uh huh. Talk about it. And it's not. It's just not as much money in the glass world. I mean, or. It almost is similar money, but the but it's harder to make money because everything costs way more. Mm. The material cost is incredibly high in glass, so it's mm. just like you're just burning money in propane and glass, and it looks like you're making money, and then you're like, we don't got no money, and yeah. we're fucking in debt, you know? Like, this is like, it's, you know? I mean, but it's definitely different. Like, what we do is a craft level. We sell cups for this company that my wife and I do. We sell cups. Mm-hmm. Aspen Hand sells, you know, we just... Um, and so, and then, but I also make glass for my art, mm-hmm. which at this point, I'm kind of like, I'm at a point where I'm kind of pausing on a lot of my art right now. I'm not really trying to make new art right now. I have proposed to all my galleries that um, in order to work with me in the future, it sounds like some real, like, I don't know. It, Talk that shit, man. Yeah, but it's but it's it's how it, but it's how I feel. Like, I, I want to adjust the, or attempt to adjust the system of payment and the the structure of commerce and equality in the art world. And I think that there's lots of different angles to this. But I think that what I've kind of boiled it down to is the one factor is, is that a lot of the risk is put on the artist to produce the work, take the time, and to keep the work. And then, like, oftentimes you're doing this 50-50 split with the gallery, but if it doesn't sell, the gallery doesn't take the hit like the artist does. The artist put in all the time. You know, sure, the gallery has, like, rent rental and like they have employees and blah 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 but they're split up a bunch of monks a bunch of artists and artists only has like one avenue to sell their work and so I think like giving artists more space with that and being more respectful of artists and their time and I think what it is is it's more really at the angle is the artists need to value their time more and be more pushy mm. And so I think what I'm, my mission is right now is to, like, try to pass a message that maybe some 20-year-old will hear. You know, some young artist will pick up and be like, oh, I'm going to approach my gallery differently. I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to ask for a higher percentage on my show. You know, I'm going to push back because I think that this is what everyone does. But it's just what everyone does because it's what the galleries want. And if we push back as artists, we might be able to make a little change. I don't think we're going to change the whole system. Because also, once the money gets there, like, people get greedy and artists get quiet and 
galleries just like funnel money to the artists. Like no big artist is going to stand up and make a stink about it. Because also a lot of the big artists negotiate a higher percentage anyways. You know, they're getting 75%. Right. You know, they're, that's how they do it, you know. And we're like negotiating 50 but also we have to pay for travel and production and shipping. And it kind of ends up being like a way higher cost. Mm. And so the one side is the risk side. And the other side is the equality side that I think more people of color need to be given opportunities, need to be employed. We need to break through some of those areas and I think it's going to be hard to do because I think it's like the challenge I hear in the glass world is like there's not enough black glass blowers to hire black glass blowers all the time. But I, my pushback is that if there's not, then like train some people, you know, if it's not there, like they haven't been given the opportunity because mm. it's harder to walk into a glass shop when you're black than it is white, mm. you know? And so it's just like, that is something I think we all need to take into consideration. And I think, it starts at the artist level because I think the galleries and the big artists Mm -hmm. aren't going to do it. I think it's going to come from young artists. And I feel like I'm in this position where I have just enough voice. Like people hear me in the art world kind of, so I can speak to it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I have my galleries listen and collectors listen. And you know, I don't have, I don't have a lot of leverage as far as money, you know, I'm like, cause basically what I did is I said, I will, instead of, oftentimes when I have an art show, the amount of work in the show, if you value all the, the value on the wall, the value will be somewhere around $100,000, 80 to 100. It never is, I don't sell like that. You know, I sell like one or two pieces if I'm lucky from a show. And it, it's the way that it's always working. It's kind of confusing because I have these big prices on things and you have this show and it's, you know, it's worth $100,000. And so if it's sold, you know, then we'd all be getting some money and it'd be great. And, you know, I would get 50 and I could, you know, potentially like 20 of that would go to production costs. And so it, it in, and for real artists, like that is a way that they make their yearly wage. Um, but I'm not really, also with sculpture, sculpture is so fucking hard to sell. Um, and so what I've thought is rather than taking that risk and having to keep that inventory and having to keep producing new shows because the galleries always want new shows and so I have a bunch of galleries I have galleries in New York LA London Japan Italy and they all have a bunch of work and they sometimes sell it and they often um, then will also sit on work and they want new work because if they go to these art fairs these art fairs go for a week and um, they want new work. It's got to be new work. That's the, that is where the money is right now in the art world. It's okay. all about making new work. Mm-hmm. But what that does as an artist is it you crank up the supply and the supply demand curve. Like you you start losing sales or losing money. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a never-ending cycle, I think. So I, this is getting to be a long, I'm kind of going off, but I think I can get us back around here. Um, so what I want to do is take that, like something like that number and like, okay, gallery, I'm going to give you a show that's worth $100,000. But, 
instead of charging you 50,000 for it, which is normally what I do, I'm gonna charge you 25,000 for it up front. You give me the cash up front and you can have it for half price. So you give me the 25K up front. And I, my basic math is, I think it's like 3,000 for rental of a studio for a month, 2,000 for material costs. I feel like it's more, we gotta be more for material costs. Maybe it's like seven for material costs. That puts us at 10 there. And then three of us each getting paid $5,000 for the month. Mm -hmm. And so rather normally, like it would be like, I would get 10,000 for the month and then I'd split 5,000 against my two assistants. What I wanted to do is hire two people of color Mm -hmm. and say, I'm gonna pay them equal to me. Mm -hmm. And even also if I have to train them on some shit or I'll Mm -hmm. use like, we'll start there. You know, but that's like, I think that that's the kind of level, like it just has to be a shift. Right. And then that provides the incentive for people to be able to come apprentice, learn, and also uh, sustain a lifestyle, you know, like, okay, just because it's like, all right, like I'm not, if I can do this and not be struggling just to survive and I can, you know, have a livable wage and I know that everything's cool because i saw when you posted it on instagram you had mapped out i was like man this is a cold this is a cold for it's been a long time we're gonna i actually wrote this letter to a gallery that wanted a show mm-hmm. i put that together and i sent it off to him and i was like oh shit i need to like this is my fucking manifesto on this like mm-hmm. this is i need to publish this for uh, my other guys but also for other artists to see you know and i've had other artists come to one artist came to me he's like oh man is it working and i'm like i mean if you be working like my galleries are drop it off. Like, yeah, like that's what's up. Mm-hmm. Cause I also figured that's what I'm going to get, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would, and I think that that's, if we all get that, eventually there's no more artists and the galleries are going to have to do something. Right. If we all stand up. And I think artists are the one to do that. The reason we're artists is cause we're, you know, we're empathetic and we're weird mm-hmm. and like we get yeah. it. And like, you know, we on one and we're willing to like stand up for some shit. And so, yeah. um, yeah, I, you know, and, and if I could turn that into a cycle where I could, like, have my studio paid for it, have my assistance paid for it, and then, and then what that is, is so that, that 25000 for one month, I, the, what I worked out with the math is, like, if I had me and two assistants for one month, I could produce a full, like, gallery-level show in a month. If I had two people helping me and money for materials, mm. then I could, like, put together a show, and at the end of that, the gallery gets everything. Not in name, and it's and at that point, it would definitely be more than would even go in the show. Mm. It would probably be like two shows worth, which is usually what I do is produce enough work, bring it all to the gallery, install it, and have some pieces to like move around and do it that way. Um, and so it it's like even a better deal for the gallery, they get more work. But I think another strategy, weirdly, that what it does is it actually takes, it kind of takes me off the market because I'm not having shows. It forces the galleries to work with my old work that's inventoried. And then it cranks up the demand because the, the supply goes down. Right. You know? And so it won't, ultimately, it probably won't mean more money in my pocket. Maybe if some of the inventory sells, but I don't, I think that it's like, there'll be a demand, maybe there might be a demand in the secondary market. I mean, I don't, my shit does not sell at auction. It doesn't go to secondary. Um, it's just too weird, you know, and it's too hard to install. Sculptures made of glass, it's got crack pipes in it and shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, people are like... Yeah, because I was like, you would do those shows and I'll just... 
Yeah, it's like all fucking crack pipes and meth labs and weed. I mean, for a while, I was like, I would try to smoke out of smoke weed, not crack usually. Mostly just crack. It was mostly just weed out of uh, out of all of my sculptures in a show. There was there were some shows I would smoke out of everything I could. Uh, I have I would send it. I did a show in London and I packed bowls into pipes and stuck it in a crate. This huge international art crate goes to London and I'm like unpacking it together and I'm like yes, there's my fucking pipe and I spark it up and just like, boom, it's on. I was, I, you know, it was just, I was so crazy. I was doing some shit. I was sending some crazy shit through the mail. We were really, Tacoma was really popping off. We were like sending some crazy things through the mail. Um, that was really, oh man, that was a crazy time. Um, but, I think that it's really I just really think it's important as an older artist mm-hmm. 41 I mean I'm just kind of hitting mid-career stride here but is to take care of the next generation you know to really think about where I came from mm-hmm. what I was doing when I was 20 who gave me opportunities who saw me mm-hmm. you know who didn't see me you know how mm-hmm. people like kind of didn't look at us I think at times as yeah. like with respect Right. Um, that like I'm like every twenty year old is gonna be a forty year old someday. Like they ain't yeah. idiots. This is true. And like maybe me and my boys look like idiots, and we can act like idiots. But I also don't think we were. You know, I think we were smarter also than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think that like we really like we just like had crazy ambitions, and like some of it didn't work. And so we think back like, oh man, I'm an idiot that like, you know, I was had all these dreams, but like also we tried. And some people like. I mean, I think about the people that did succeed, like some of these like art boys, um, like what it must have been like to be them to like just be an idiot then to make money at being an idiot. Like some of those graffiti <laughs> dudes that blow up early are yeah. just like, what must it be like to have acted that dumb and not feel bad about yeah. it? Yeah. Well, like I look back on some of that shit, I'm like, ooh, that was a really bad decision. We did some stupid shit. But had that made us a million? Wouldn't that be like, man, wasn't that crazy like that time we painted that thing? We did that crazy thing. Like, we all that shit. We took it down to the railroad tracks. We set it on fire. And then, like, it blew up on Instagram. We made a bunch of money. That was so cool. No, it was like, then, like, so-and-so got arrested. So-and-so got beat up. Like, this dude fell out the thing. This dude got run over. Like, this dude got shot. Like, it's just like, oh, that was a sad life. Yep, made a lot of mistakes. Like, that, that really sucked. So... I really try to, like, see young people where they are yeah. and, like, really, like, get at them and, like, let them, like, in my studio and in, as, as assistants, like, let them make mistakes, mm-hmm. you know? Let them do shit. And I don't try to ride people too hard. I mean, I can be tough, but I don't, I'm like, you know, if people fuck things up, if people are late, if people are, on, you know, on one, <laughs> like, you kind of got to, for me, I feel like it's important to give that wiggle room and to be respectful of that next generation and be a steward of it and hopefully give them some information and give them some light give them some stuff to you know to carry and and show that i'm fighting for the little dude you know that i think that's the toughest part that like i have always had that fight in me but i think as i've gotten older it's gotten harder because it's like you know, I got kids and a family mm-hmm. and, like, I got to keep it straight and I can't just, like, loud mouth and fuck some shit up. Yeah. yeah. You know? Like, I got to, yeah. like, do it right. I can't just, like, yell at a gallery because mm-hmm. they're doing it wrong. I have to, like, write a nice letter mm-hmm. and, like, be like, you should, like, really, like, think about this. I just yeah. had a big conversation at the Seattle Art Museum was going to... They own four of my pieces. They bought four of my pieces. Mm. And I was going to 
give them a fifth piece. It's like at the bar. Like, you buy four drinks, the bartender, you, 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 okay, you give them a fifth right, piece. Right, right. So I was like, all right, Seattle Art Museum, you earned one. Like, I got this piece for me. This is four years ago. I started this project of giving them this piece that I'd had. I showed it in New York. I traveled to Japan. Then I traveled to Toronto. I traveled back to New York. And now I have it here. And I got the Seattle Museum interested in it. They got on board with it. I brought the curator and registrar, a lead installer, up to my studio installed the piece it's like this wheelbarrow lights all over it and this stereo component and i got a friend to compose a piece of music that could be used that was not copyrighted so we mm. have like ability to play it nice i did all this shit to make it right and they were like yeah we want it and they're like and you go through when you go when you try to get stuff to a museum mm. you go through this kind of complex process of that really starts very informally you reach out to the curator somebody you know at the museum you're like i have a piece of art and i need to give it to you you don't know the curator at the museum, you probably don't, it's probably not time to give them a piece yet. Right. But if you know the curator, it might, you can try. It also might not be time yet. Okay. But you can try. <laughs> and so, and you know, if you give it to them once the museum has it, like they own it and they have to take care of it. They don't necessarily have to show it, but they're not going to ruin it, which I will do in my basement, you know? Right, like eventually right. my shit is going to like, or I'll go out in the yard or I'll just burn it. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I'd want to get it to museum so I don't fuck it up. So I go through this like complex informal process, get a hold of the curator, start that, get it kind of into formal channels. Then we start doing like emails and like get them up here and they actually come visit. They're on the clock, like three women come up. They're like checking it out. They're great. They're into it. It's good connection. Seems like it's right. And then I hear that like it's 100%. We're going to go. They just got to let me know when it gets picked up. Then it fucking stalls again. Then there's new director. Now they have to like reassess all the acquisitions. And then they just told me like right before the pandemic that they're like, actually, no, we can't take it. And I've been sitting on this shit in storage. It's like this big ass crate. It's a six foot by eight foot by 10 foot crate. It's a big fucker. I've been sitting on it, like waiting. I was like, I'm going to get it to them. So I had to talk to Seattle. So I finally was like to the curator. I wrote her a letter. I was like, actually, I usually would say this, but like that was fucked up what you did. Like you really, like you really set me up. Like, don't, please don't do that. And I, and it's something that I do as an artist in that way of like taking care of the next generation. If some, somebody fucks me over, sometimes it's easier to not do anything. Sometimes it's easier to not say anything. If somebody fucks you over in the art world, like they, they say they're going to buy something and they don't and they leave you hanging. It's kind of embarrassing and it's better to, it feels better to just ignore it and move on. But if nobody says anything to these people, then there's another person coming along they're going to take advantage too. Mm. And so if I come at them and I'm like, you know, I, I'm like straight, like, I'm like, here's what happened and this is what you did wrong. Like, try not do this next time. You know, mm -hmm. see this, see how it hurt me and hopefully you can like do better by the next, you know, 20 year old, next 20, 30, 30 year old or something, right, you know? Because right. uh, I think that's important when you get to a little bit of power, like to like, take care of it you know take mm -hmm. care of your people take care of the people that don't they can't have a voice they can't say anything yeah. um so i came out the, the curator wrote this letter and i was like you know you can't fuck me over i was that's bogus so she finally called me back yesterday to talk to me and uh, i kind of went at her you know went at her on all this stuff of like not doing that but then the real like the real piece like from my position i was i had the curator on the phone and i was like oh yeah by the way, I really think that as a in the institutions of the Northwest, I believe that all the nonprofits in America should be run by people of color. 
I believe that anything that is, anyone who's getting a tax break, also churches. I believe all churches should be taken over by people of color. Churches and nonprofits are not paying taxes, so they're getting a tax break, so it's time to like switch this up. And one way that this can happen is that if I go talk to, if or not me, but if somebody does, decides to make this decision, director of the nonprofit, director mm-hmm. of the Seattle Museum, curator of the Seattle Museum, who I got on the phone, if they went and went to the board and they said, I want to go find a local woman of color mm-hmm. and I'm going to train her. I'm going to find somebody that's in the arts but doesn't necessarily need the degree because you don't need a fucking degree to be working in a museum. You need to be a nice person and be able to talk and know how to check your email. Right. You know, you don't need a fucking degree. And you go find this person in the Northwest and you train them up a year, two years, four years, whatever it takes. And then at the end of that training period, you resign and they get your full wage. Not a percentage of your wage, your whole fucking wage. And... If every person, if every director, every curator, everybody in a nonprofit, when it did that, then we can make a difference. It could make that change. I don't think it will happen, but I do think that everyone needs to be aware of that we can, and it's not Mm -hmm. that hard. It's right there. It's one little decision, and every white person in person in charge to make a little decision and make a little Mm -hmm. sacrifice. And the reality is that person could then go work in the for-profit industry and make a killing. Mm, you know they can yeah. make money in the for profit, or they could go to a bank and borrow money because they're white. It's possible. That's real. You know, and so like, and this is I've been going at some glassblowers too because I don't think the glass white glassblowers should be working in nonprofits. Mm. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's our place. I think we need to make sure the people of color are in those positions and then get out of the way. And so I had the Seattle Art Museum curator uh, on the phone, and I was like. You know, really, like, what you need to do is go find a woman of color mm-hmm. and train her for your job. And she was like, oh, yeah, 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 that's a really good. And she was, like, right along with it the whole time until I was like, and then when she's fully trained up, you resign. <laughs> and she was like, okay, well, we'll take that into consideration. Thank you for your information. I was like, and I was like, no, no, make sure you talk about it. Tell the board that I told you that. And she was like, really, she was giving me the run around at that point. But that's, that's the thing. And I also know that, like, she's not going to tell the board. Right. I didn't, I didn't really do shit. But I also, I think I you did, know pla- I planted though? a seed for yeah. her. That will, it is, she's going to think about it in a way that I don't think she would have thought about it. Mm-hmm. And I really, I started the conversation as like, I really want you to think about centering artists. Mm-hmm. Because I think that we've lost touch with centering artists in museum and galleries. You know, it's about the institution. It's about the art event. It's about the, like, the gala. It's about the director. It's about the fundraising efforts they do. But they wouldn't be an art gallery. They wouldn't be an art institution without art, without mm. raw art made by real artists. Yeah. And I think, it, it, you know, when, when institutions fuck people over, when they do things like that, when they hold back on payments, when they don't come through on things... It really, it hurts artists so much and it doesn't ever hurt the institution, mm, you know? Yeah. And so I wanted to like get that to them and I wanted to, you know, and, and that's like, I think in a lot of ways where I am now as an artist, I think I really just want to like create opportunities for people. Any like sales I'm getting, like I want to turn it around into a more, into a better thing for younger people I want to create opportunities for people I want to stand up and be a voice for younger artists so they can know because I remember when I was younger I wasn't looking at like the fancy bullshit artists 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't looking at like the big money artists that mm-hmm. the collectors are making money off of. That's not what young artists are looking at. Right. They're looking at the grimy, crazy ones. Yep, you know, yep. they're looking at mm-hmm. like the crossover of hip hop yeah, and art. Yeah. They're looking at graffiti. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. looking at like people that aren't in that same. You know, they aren't showing at the big art fairs. You know, yeah, they're not doing that shit. And it's like that. Who is who I want to be thinking about, and that's who. I want to look up to me. Got you. I want yeah, to. Yeah. I want those twenty-year-olds to be like, "Oh shit!" There's like an old guy that's on one, you know, that's like <laughs> that's talking some real bullshit and like, you know, making a steak, and he's like doing the thing that I wish I was doing. And if I had the guts, I would say because I think, like what I was saying, like I think we're smarter than we give ourselves credit for when we we're younger. Mm-hmm. That yeah. we, like, we saw it when we were younger. We just, we didn't say anything about it. You know, we saw the bullshit. We're like, this, you know, all this shit seems racist and, like, fucked up and, like, classist and, like, real nepotistic. Like, it's real bullshit. And we're like, okay, well, whatever. I guess we'll just do it because it's the world. And, like, 20 years later, we look up and we're like, oh, shit, are we part of this now? Like, are we playing into this? Like, I don't want to be, and I don't want to get so scared of my money that, like, I'm not willing to say that stuff. Because then if I am, my money is, it's not good to be making the money out. Right. You know, I want to be making honest money. Mm-hmm. And if I and if I'm losing money cuz I'm speaking my mind, I think that's better. And the thing is is when when I hear the aspect of okay, let's get these women of color in positions, the the thought that crosses my mind is you have to be willing to maybe take a temporary ale for the mm-hmm. greater good of humanity. And like what yeah. like how big of an ale are you willing to take for the greater good? Because like you might not be willing to do that. So that's not like you're uh what what is it like the the like the seed of equal benefit or whatever. It's like you gotta put mm-hmm. in a certain amount to get a certain amount out. You know, yeah. you're paying the dividends to reap that to reap that result so if you want quick change then the quickest change is is maybe to train people and put and and put them in with your own you know two hands instead of hoping that the system is magically yeah. going to fix itself yeah you and know? i think i the sentiment i hear is a lot is like i'm doing as much as i can mm-hmm. you know i talked to my people and i did it up you know my kind of my hands are tied mm-hmm. but i think that people need to think even bigger in their life and like what could i do like could I leverage my job? Could I go to my employer? Could I go to my board of directors? Could mm-hmm. I say, I want this job to be a person of color and I'm going to train that person and I'm going to take a, we're going to split my wage in half right now for one year and so you're not going to pay any more and I'm going to train this person and then you're going to hire them and that's going to be good for you and it's going to be good for me and I'm going to go work and mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a different job or I'm going to yeah. go get a loan and I mm-hmm. think that that's like and it's a really scary time to do it right now it's people are scared and everyone's scared but I think that's like you know it's the time to make a difference and I think I also really think that with these nonprofit institutions mm. if they are to get out front of it it'll pay off for them Yeah, I think that just financially it actually is a smart move because I think if they are the ones that are willing to take the first step and say, we are putting, we're asking every single white person on our staff to tender the resignation after they find a person of color to take their job. Like, I would, it would be insane. It would, yeah. be like, it would be insane at the institution. It would be like fucking chaos. 
And then it would be really hard to like train all those people at once and to like switch people and to find people that maybe like you want to find local people of color. It might yeah. not, you might not get as good of a trained person mm-hmm. because what they do is they widen this field. So they bring in these like super experts mm-hmm. that like have all this like, you know, knowledge about systems and shit. But I think that you could, you could really change local economies. I think you could change the way those nonprofits function within communities and create community environments for people, create family-like structures for people. And also, I mean, like, it's not only that, but it seems like there would be some sort of way to create some scholarships for younger people to be... It's like, okay, well, we're going to yeah, train, train yeah, someone training, and training then, programs yeah, exactly, for young yeah, people for sure. start, mm-hmm. and just, like, make the switch and not be like, oh, because that was... I talked to the Tacoma Museum curator after I went at them on the Instagram page mm-hmm. and she called me. She was like, oh, shit. What's up? I'm sorry. Because <laughs> she was basically like, it's fucked up what we're doing and it's all white. And she's like, and, you know, the hard part is that, like, in for the curator position there are no black people in the pipeline Mm. the pipeline being this like certain schools certain amount of experience like you get to that upper echelon and they've taken it is so hard to get to that level you you can't get to that level unless you're well off unless you're white and you got money behind you or you know and so that's like what it's created is this this system of privilege it looks like, well, you know, it's everyone, we just took the best people we could. Oh, just so happens they're all white. I don't know. That's yeah, weird. Rich. And so, yeah. And they come from great families. Crazy. Yeah. All right, this is easy. They're all really, you're like, well-adjusted people. And this is really great. And we're not having, like, to deal with, like, real people, like, local crazy people. And so I think that, you know, I think the problem is, like, is right there. It's, like, in that pipeline that, like... Mm-hmm. And I think you look at the Tacoma Art Museum, like, they don't fucking need a, a, a Harvard, Stanford-educated curator. They don't need somebody that went to Bard curatorial school in the summer, you know? Like, they need somebody that's nice and smart and can check their fucking email and knows how to, like, make coffee. Because, like, that's your other job is, like, you're in a building that, like you got to go open these doors and now you got to do this thing with the education department. Now you got to go over and talk to this person. Now you got to like help this person do this. And then you're going to like do this show. You write this email. It's like a lot of mm-hmm. stuff that like we all are good at, Yeah, you know, and it's not something that's like out of the wheelhouse of good, smart people. I mean, I think it's also, there's a lot of shit that I could go off on. And that's another one is the like, is the kind of schooling that we require in these institutions and schools that I don't, I think really underserves those positions because there's a lot of people in these nonprofit institutions and in these schools that are not the right people for the job. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we need more real world experience and less degrees. You know, yeah. we need more people that see people from where, who they are, or where they're from. And we need more people of color or mm-hmm. people with experience, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's, yeah, it's important to like bang that drum that if you're white and you work for a nonprofit, you should give up your position for a person of color. And if you want to work in the for-profit industry, you should hire people of color, always. And if, you know, and or you just go to the bank and borrow money because you're white. <laughs> and so, you know what's, okay, so since I have you on, on here, I touched on some stuff 
in the last episode. And being in Seattle, man, the Northwest, I like to say, this is like the woke West. Because, like, yeah. it's a different, it's a different. So, hey, man, I was walking down the street. This is like you told me you were a beautiful black man today. I was like, whoa, this is different out whoa. here. This is, is different. It, was it white lady? Like, she's just. Nah, she's a black lady. Okay. But I still, if she was a white lady, I was like, this is like super. That's what I was trying to say the white lady. Like, yeah, I know, right? Right? Yeah, but still. But the thing is, it's like, it's crazy, man. Um, Because it's like, I, I went and had a gathering of, of homies uh, the other night. I got to see, you know, Herman Beans, which hopefully we can get him on the show. We go, we go put that out in the atmosphere because I sent him a picture of yeah. you. Like, hey, I got him on, so we'll see. So stay tuned, guys. But anyway, one of my homies said, the first thing, he's sitting on the porch, he's like, all right, James, let's get this out the way. Yeah. Like, we got a lot of stuff going on right now. Let's get this out the way. And I'm just like, damn. You want to have, like, we don't, we haven't even talked about families. We haven't talked about, like, nothing. Like, the first thing, and I, I respected it so much because that showed me that it meant a lot to him how I was feeling. You know, like, all right, mm-hmm. like, what, like, you all right? Like, you, you okay? How you been, man? What's, what's really up? You know, yeah. so it, it's a trip, you know, in, in, in California, I've experienced there, there's a lot of people who are speaking up, but I also see that there's the the silence. You know, I'm listening before I take a stance um, crowd. But then, you know, out here in Seattle, you guys are super vocal. You know, in the great in the Northwest, we'll say you guys are like hella vocal, Eli. Yeah, Seattle you know? is really Seattle is very on one, mm-hmm. and I think I think California. I mean, California is, I think, more conservative than we kind of give it credit for. It's mm-hmm. a blue state, but it has a lot of conservatism, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that, it's, you know, I, yeah, it's different. And it's, and you get further out here, in, outside of Seattle, Bellingham, and it gets, you know, you you get this crossover of super liberal and starts to get kind of hick out in the county here. It you also like, like yeah. But like, yo, in the city, they have Black Lives Matter signs in their yards, bro. I was like, yo, like, y'all got the yard signs? Like, for, uh, okay, like, so y'all don't have like, yard signs. Like, like no, they giving, over there, no they giving it up out here. Like, they really giving it. I was like, man, I might need to. <laughs> yeah, it's like, everyone's got like, yard like, signs. Man, like, yeah, the crazy dude. people got, like, they, like, homemade signs. They're, like, drawn <laughs> up there. Like, this one guy's, like, painted on his course. All this shit looks like a Dr. Bronner so Like, it's, like, and it's amazing. It's all about, like, yeah, Black Lives man. Matter shit. And, like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're, yeah, yeah. We got, like, uh, we have a few minutes of, we're, we're at the tail end, so, like, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, we probably, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so you're, yeah, they don't got no, they got no, those yard signs in Fresno, mm-hmm. dude. It's, I mean, it's different up here, and it's, and it's also easy to, like, get caught up up here and think that, like we're making a difference and like the world is changing because I think the Northwest is kind of one of those echo chambers too. Yeah. We're all up here and we're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like big protests. Like, yeah. And I think in a place like Portland, we're starting to see that it's like, that's where it meets, you know, Portland is like starting to be where the Northwest becomes California becomes Mm. the more conservative side, you know, Mm. It's like still, you know, it's the Ronald Reagan Democrat sort yeah. of style, and I think, you know, you. See, I mean, that's that's it's tough stuff. It's really hard what's going on in mm-hmm. Portland. It was hard what was going on in Seattle. Like it just felt like 
you know, there's like potential, but also it's not really. And now it just feels, oh man, I'm so scared about what's going on out there mm-hmm. right now. And I feel like that's, I guess that's a part of, you know, it's just like the echo chamber of Seattle in the Northwest. It's, it's important to be aware of the bigger scene. And I think also as an artist in the mm-hmm. Northwest, it's, it's easy to like get, you know, to think like, yeah, okay, everything around me is good. Like, people have Black Lives Matter signs in their neighborhood. Like, we're all aware. It's cool. Like, let's move on. And it's like, no, we need to, like, first of all, we're in the Northwest and no one else is doing this. Mm. It's just happening here. And we still are, like, not actually hiring black people. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, we got the sign in the yard, Sorry. but, like, it doesn't also have a sign that says, like, also hiring for professional black person, like, you know, like pro position, like not. And Mm -hmm. I, and then I think another, like another sentiment I got pushing back against the glass world from Dale Mm -hmm. Chihuly. I was like, you need to like, you need to, you have, you know, eight people on your blowing floor on average a day. Like those should be black people. Mm -hmm. And you know, their, his response or the company's response is that they're donating $25,000 a year Mm -hmm. to the Hilltop nonprofit organization. Okay. Which is great. 25k is great. That like does a lot of things, but it's not, you know, those glass blowers make like probably 60, 80, 100,000 dollars a year. Mm. You know? Like it should be so say they're making 80 and there's 10 of them. Uh. It should be 800,000 dollars a year. Right, or maybe having a scholarship that's dedicated to the kids from Hilltop like, "Hey, here's well, some money they do, to they do some good scholarship stuff, but I think and they and they do some good stuff. And that's like the 25 goes to like creating uh. opportunities. And I think that's really important, but I think we need to get past this idea of just creating access. Mm. Because I think just access isn't going to do it. Okay. Because just if you, like, as a young black man, like, get in shop and get a little experience, right. if you don't get four years of training, mm-hmm. you're still going to have a hard time getting in the door anywhere. Facts. And four years, you can't do that for free. You can't do that on the weekends. Yeah, you need to get true. paid to do that. Yeah. You know, you true. need to either get paid or you need to, like, a white person get a scholarship and a fucking loan from a bank that lets you pay that off in a good interest rate right. in four years, like college yep. does. You yeah. know, we need to have programs like that mm-hmm. that are like, oh, it's a training program. Here's, you know, here's $30,000 a year for four years. And, and if you do it and you get to the end of four years, you don't have to pay it back. Mm-hmm. How's that sound? Like, yep. it, you know, and how many employers would love to be involved in that situation? Like, you only have to pay half of it or you pay a small amount of it. Yeah. Like, there's so many ways that we could change things that I think... You know, I think in a lot of ways we're scared because the government has got us scared because of the way the education system is set up, because of the way that the economy is set up. Like, we're all fucking scared to lose our jobs. We're all scared to be in a difficult financial situation. And we don't have the education as a community, as a group, Mm -hmm. to to understand and speak about it. You know, I think we haven't. I don't think we've recovered from losing Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. I think we're, I think that like set us back in a way and then it like that squeeze with the government squeezing the education system, taking money out of the education system, dumbing it to the military, removing the draft so there's not something to protect, protest against, making it voluntary, but advertising in all the southern states like hard, oh, you're a poor black guy, like we can give you an education. Yeah. Like, the whole thing creates this funneling system yeah. that shuts everybody up and puts the black people yeah, in the bottom. Yeah, listen! 
So we had three different civil rights movements, and we had the the civil rights movement of the 1960s with Malcolm and Martin, and then we had the civil rights movement of the 1990s, which included the Million Men March, you know, and speakers like you know Farrakhan, who really put, put the the words out, and then now we have this civil rights movement of 2020, right? And it seems like things yeah. have really erupted. If looking back, you would think that those particular movements, it seems like they accomplished more than what they did. And then now when you look around with the current space, it's like, oh, wow, like we didn't really get that far. Right. Because we're we're still experiencing the, what we're experiencing. That's the part that I'm really puzzled with is like, you know, we were there in the 90s and mm-hmm. like saw this shit like 93, like fucking all of the good hip hop albums came out and like mm-hmm. spoke some real truth. Mm-hmm. And like our generation was there. I mean, was it, you know, was it the dot com bust? Was it September 11th? Like what gave us the squeeze, mm-hmm. you know, as our generation? And I think also just the reality of like the economy and like where we were, like we all were then like, you know, 25 and like, shit, we got to fucking make this car payment. I got to like get my insurance together. Like got to yeah. like pay my bills. I can't go do that. You know, the WHO riots mm-hmm. were like a real strong moment. There was like a lot of like sentiment and you look at what's happening right now and like, it's not new. It's, right. you know, it's people dusting off their old signs, coming yeah. out, doing the same shit. It's the same conversations. And I think it is, a lot of it is this, like, institutional stuff that we pay lip service to, but we don't actually change. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's even possible to make those kind of changes institutionally. You know, I mean, I think it is possible. I think it, it ha- we have to think it's possible. But I don't know how it's going to happen, and I don't no like it, in some ways like it's a crazy thought but like you know like a revolution I could see could change it you know right it, is that the only thing I don't think so I think there are other options and I think there's ways to get the information you know from us like that we are the interpreters between you know the boomers and like what they did in the civil rights movement and the you know and the generation before that, but what they did um, to stand up in the civil rights movement, what was continued, I don't know. I guess I've the thought I've been having lately is that, um, hey Dave, hey, we're just we're recording an interview. I'll come find you. Um, I think the thought I've been having lately is about the loss of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Okay. And that perhaps it's much larger than I thought. And I think the story I was told in school was that, you know, there was these leaders, these black leaders that made a difference, helped lead civil rights, then they were assassinated, kind of by who knows, and then the civil rights like continued on, and it was great, and mm. we fixed it. Right. And I think the thought I've been having now is that that's it, not entirely that's accurate. not entirely accurate. That, <laughs> that it seems like the loss of Martin and Malcolm was actually ended a lot of it. It it 
I mean, and there, there's other guys that were killed and put in jail mm-hmm. to the point where there was these communities that were decimated, mm-hmm. which is the, the act that's continued on a low, you know, a low frequency, kind of below the radar of just putting black men in jail. Mm-hmm. That just like rips these communities apart and and makes it impossible for them to continue and prosper and grow. It just like it just you know you take one guy out of a community of six or seven and mm-hmm. it can actually like disrupt that economy. If everyone's leaning each other for work and they're they're part of each other's family structure, it can destroy things. And you know, I mean, I've read about some of the stories around Malcolm X and his and family. The CIA and killed the man. The CIA. And the, and the, and that the assassinations were definitely government related. Yeah, and for sure. And especially, I mean, with people like, you know, you got like uh, Fred Hampton and Bobby Seale and, you yeah. know, like yeah. a lot of the, like pretty much all of the Black Panther Party, a lot of just black revolutionaries were put into um, jail based on false crimes and things like that. So Yeah, they yeah. did a great job of like, doing their job being, you know, the good guys on yeah. their side going against the bad guys and doing anything they could. I wouldn't have made it back then. To put them into, I mean, I'm none of them. Like, I, I, and I get scared myself. Like, being, I'm like, is you know, I I don't think we see the end of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I don't think we're finished with that. And I think that we might be awakening a new generation to that awareness mm-hmm. and that there is something that needs to be done. And there is a bunch that was left on the table and there is a reason why it was destroyed as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, well, and it comes, I think awareness is one thing and then, because you can't reconcile without being aware of what's wrong. I can't tell you I'm sorry for stepping on your shoe until first I realized I stepped on your shoe. So like once yeah. I realized like, hey, I, yeah, once, where, the, where the wrong yeah, is then, and something is... Right. So it becomes like, not only that but then realizing that oh all of the stuff that these people are saying it's not just bullshit it's actually there's some fact to it and they're not just making this stuff up you know uh so that's because a lot of times people think like well you guys are making stuff up pull yourself up by the bootstraps and then it's just like well it's not quite that simple you know it's there's a lot of things like redlining districts and gerrymandering and things like that make it very hard for communities of color to to vote and then it's like well how are you gonna yeah man there's there's a whole there's a whole you know yeah there's a whole system of Mm -hmm. oppression that we're battling against and i think i think Let's go back to this, like, different moments of civil rights Mm -hmm. activism. And I think that there was civil rights activism in the 90s, but I think, I don't know, I think I'd push back about how much, like, progress is made. And I think that that is part of the issue that happened with losing Malcolm and Martin Mm -hmm. is that, like, there was a real clear movement happening, and that stopped. And then... That it's, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I don't know. It feels like, it feels like it hasn't moved much past. And you know why that is? Because here's the thing, and this is the thing I talk about with a lot of, with the, with the black delegation. 
you need a goal, right? Like with Mal, with Malcolm and Martin, like yeah. we had a yeah. clear goal. Yeah. So like, if you don't just have, if you don't have a goal, like, okay, what's our mission? What's the result that we want? So like, when you have a result in mind, then you can move together as a community, as a unit. But it's like we have, you know, there's Jesse Jackson and there's, you know, Al Sharpton. I mean, like Farrakhan, shout out to Farrakhan. He like. That is a brother who gives us some real solid fruit to like really, you know, grow with. But as far as like, you know, I mean, we have Cornell West. He's a great black intellectual, but there were no there are no current leaders that can pull together everybody and give us a solid. And again, it's got to be a young person. It's got to be 25. You know, Mm -hmm. it's got to be somebody that's been like on Mm -hmm. it since they're a teenager. Yeah, man. And is paying attention. Yeah. And is, but who is yeah. it and where can we find them? Yeah, we'll figure it out. They'll pop up. That's what, yeah. It'll yeah, when, it, when the time's right, you mm-hmm. know. And I think, I don't know, that's so I guess the mission that I've felt I can talk about mm-hmm. is employment. Mm. It's creating employment opportunities yep. and creating access to employment, whether that's training and really thinking about a real rather than like, you know, weekend access training programs, but like real, you know, years long paid training programs. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately the government needs to deal with this and the government has control over nonprofits and churches in a different way because they don't pay them money. Mm. They get a tax break. Right. By providing a service to the community. Uh-huh. Well, they can't fully provide a service to the community until they're providing a service to the full community, which means stopping racist and only having white people in your organization. <laughs> and even if you are not mean to do it and you're all a bunch of nice white people, you're not allowed to do that. We got to change that. And if we just changed that, mm-hmm. if we said, okay, if you're a nonprofit and you're a church, you have to be black or people of color. Mm-hmm. It would be so insane. It would be like, I mean, <laughs> riots in the streets. Karen would not know what stuff. to do with herself. But, um, so, and I think when we think large like that, mm. then that's what helps us start small. Mm. You know, if you can get, like, what does it really look like when it's good? What does it look like when it's fixed? Right. What is something insanely drastic that gets us there? That nobody would do, but just because you can't do it doesn't mean you can't think about it. Right. And try to plan for it and come up with this idea. And then, you know, maybe there's small things we could do. And if we're all talking about it, eventually it could happen. Mm -hmm. Or something like that could happen. Something could become, Mm -hmm. some change could come about. But I think you're right, though. It does take some level of sacrifice from everyone. I think to get that's, to that's what we have to see. Is like we have to all see our privilege and understand where we can step back and mm-hmm. make an opportunity. Me as a white person, like how I can do that, mm-hmm. how I can be an employer mm-hmm. that creates those opportunities. Yeah, and not you know, not apply for those things and like reach out to the museums when they're doing scholarships and say, like, I hope I make sure it's a black person, make sure it's a, you know, person of color and use my voice, create opportunities, create a voice, be the loud mouth that the 20 year old sees and is like, all right, this is possible. I'm going to fight because if we can get the 20 year olds behind this, we can change it. Yeah. You know, if we got all the 20 year olds, you know, the the 19 to 23s mm-hmm. 
to really get behind some shit, it happens. They're going to be running it soon. There's nobody else. They're going to be. They're the last one standing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and they're they're not just they're like a they're you know it's so. That's true. Yeah, you know, Eli, we we we've taken a lot of your time. I appreciate you having us out. You know, yeah, thank in you your for workshop today. The studio. Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. Now, do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this up? I want to give a shout out to Daniel for holding it down in the hot shop. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, hey, thank Daniel. you. Yeah, what's going down, Daniel? Uh, just uh, dressing the wound. Yes. Yeah. Oh, nice. Bleed. Oh, shit, fool, you got some uh, blood squirting. Yeah, I was pulling the block. Let's I was see. pulling the mold out of the bucket with one hand. And I oh, that's not bad. Yeah. I so last time you got a, uh, got cut, it was, uh, it was squirting, man. It was crazy. Man. Hopefully never again. Daniel's a real maniac. Yeah, okay. Shots. Yeah, t- check him out. Daniel, uh, Daniel Korsich on Instagram. Yeah, that's hot. Yeah, he's making fire cups right now. There you go. So now, where can they catch you on the web at? Um, you can see me on Instagram. Me and my wife, we have a company called Asp and Hand. Asp, like the snake. A S P, A N D, H A N D, like a snake in your hand. Asp and Hand. Um, that's on the internet. And then elsewhere on the internet, I am Uncle Eli. Where you see me loud mouthing. <laughs> uh, I have a website called Elias Hansen because I'm an artist, but I have I pretty much just like started using Instagram, and then I kind of just got tired of everything. If you Google my shit, you can you can see me on the internet and see all my crazy glass tweaker sculptures, some shit I did in the underworld, shit I did with Reed, <laughs> shit I did with H Beansworthy, Mr. Herman Beans himself, who's gonna be on the internet pretty soon. But don't tell him I told you. I definitely do not put his picture on the internet. I will. I will. <laughs> Don't put Mr. Reader's picture on the internet. Yeah, we gotta see. I gotta Board do chips some, in. Just don't see, put his picture anywhere. Man, uh, you know what? But we get real. I'm gonna do the voice disguise. I'm gonna. I have you do that. You know what I'm saying? The fucking voice disguise shit. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Jefferson Ross Maloney, my dear attorney. He's a wonderful man. Give a shout out to Joey Piazza, who's not with us anymore, and Steven Sibbett. Pour one out for all the homies. It's too many homies to list. If I got into the homies, we start crying. It takes an hour. Um, you know, holding it down with my wife, Blair Hansen, is so amazing. She's so wonderful, and it's so rad having a space together, having kids together, being able to make art. And, um, you know, shout out to Hilltop for holding it down for the students color people of color down in Tacoma making opportunities and my Sean Cabrera and Jordan Jordan Lovell Lavelle uh, you know it's all about these young people man that's what it's really about dude it's about it's about the next generation and it's about supporting each other and community it's all of us or none of us, dude. It's all of us or none of us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming out here and thanks for talking. And with that, you could be anywhere on the internet, but you're here with us and we appreciate you. Catch us again next week. Same BS time, same BS channel. Once again, this some shit I just thought of y'all. Scientific fiction that's not admissible in no Carter Law. I'm out of here like Vladimir. James Drill's over and out. Peace. Art and Bullshit Podcast. Art, 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 art and Bullshit Podcast.